Well, good morning. Um, you know, a couple, like this time last week, I was kind of a little jet lagged. Um, we had a little trip. Um, you know, in my mind, I thought, you know, 10 to 14 hours on an airplane um, would be a lot of reading time um, that I would get, you know, I took a, I took, I'm one of those weirdos that took a, you know, 700 page book and I'm like, yeah, we're going to get through that on the way there. I, not even close. Um, <laughs> But I, I will say, and I, I, you know, just to be completely honest, that the temptation of the little screen in front of me <laughs> on the back of the, the person who conveniently leaned back so I could get it really close um, was very, very tempting. And I gave in and I watched a, a movie that will remain nameless, but <laughs> it was a sci-fi movie about aliens that were pestering a horse ranch. I know, it sounds, sounds a little crazy. But what was weird about this movie was in the midst of this sci-fi movie that I thought was about aliens, there's a random little storyline that pops up. It's a storyline about a tragedy involving a monkey. And for me, I'm watching this movie and I'm, I'm, I'm ready for the aliens and I'm ready for all of the sci-fi involved there. And then this monkey scene shows up, and it haunted me. It, it was so not a part of the story. It was so traumatic that, and it, maybe it was because I was really tired, um, cramped into a little teeny chair that never sit, fits my size. But it, it just struck me as like, why is this story in this other story? You see, from time to time, authors do this, don't they? they? They take a little story, and you think it's one thing, and then they include something else. I mean, that would be like reading a, a biography of, say, Queen Elizabeth, and randomly there's a chapter about a serial killer who lived at the same time. And you kind of go, how do these things relate? See, because we're in this Gospel of Matthew, which we're returning to after a, a five-week hiatus, and this book is all about Jesus. But randomly, today, in the passage that Sarah just read, there's a story of a monster. Now, not a under-the-bed drooling monster, but a human who is a pretty awful person. And when we look at it, we go, that's what this whole passage is about. Like, couldn't we have just read that and then go to the next one and talk some more about Jesus? Well, I think Matthew is trying to do something here. He wants us to see something very clearly, because he doesn't have to include this. There's no set rule that historians have to include everything that happened. The books would be huge, and I would take them on trips with me, right? They would be huge books that would be unreadable. So Matthew includes this here. The Holy Spirit told Matthew to include this. Why? Why is this story here? So we're going we're gonna to dig into that. So where have we been so far? So we've been cruising through Jesus' life. Jesus is living around the Sea of Galilee. He's been traveling back and forth. Where we left off last time, back in December, Jesus went home to Nazareth. And Nazareth's the little city up on top of a hill that you really can't see unless you're in the city. About 200 or so people. Jesus went there. He'd been working miracles. He'd been preaching. And the people in Nazareth want nothing to do with him. You just, we, we don't believe in you. Get out of here. So Jesus leaves Nazareth. And then immediately we get into this story. So let's figure out why does the Holy Spirit tell Matthew 
to include this story about this guy named Herod. So we're going to start in verse 1. Now, I want to tell you that verses 1 and 2 are actually chronologically at the end. So where we're at in the story of Jesus, John the Baptist has been dead for a while. And so verses 1 and 2 are chronologically the next thing. Herod goes, hey, I've heard of this guy, Jesus. I wonder who that is. Because John the Baptist had been put to death. So we're going to see how this all works together here. So verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He'd been raised from the dead. And this is, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So this kind of summary of where we're starting should bring us to ask some questions. We always want to ask questions as we're reading. Why did you say this? What's the point? Because that helps us see the bigger picture. So the first question is, what is going on here? And this is kind of the question I've already, uh, I've already broached to you guys. Why is it in a book about Jesus, why is it that there's 12 verses about Herod? Why is Herod the focus of almost every single sentence? He's the subject of almost every single sentence. Why are we in a book about a hero talking about this villain? So there's lots of options. I'll give you a couple that I don't think are the complete option. Maybe this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is going to die soon. Maybe this is a foreshadowing of that. Maybe it's the passing of the torch from John to Jesus. We see at the end, John's disciples go, and it looks like they might join with Jesus. Maybe it's showing how good Jesus is by showing how bad Herod is. Maybe it's there just because it happened. Could be it. But I think there's more to it than this. I think we need to ask a few other questions, though, before we can get at the answer. Because, see, Matthew is teaching us. He's warning us about something. And he doesn't want us to miss it. And so we need to continue to dig deeper, not just, hey, cool story, move on. Well, what is the point? So the second question, who is this Herod? Or maybe a better question is, why can't this family think of other names other than Herod? Because by my count, there's about eight of them. And so that makes it very confusing. So this Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Now, I'm not going to refer to Herod the Great as great anymore, and you'll see why here in a moment. Herod was the father of the Herodian line, which is a rather large line. Herod was given control of Israel by Rome. He was the king of Israel. He's the one who builds the second temple, He's also the one that murders countless babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. He dies, uh, Herod dies in 4 BC. Now Herod had 10 wives and 14 children that we know of. Herod was insane. And he was deeply suspicious of anyone who could take his throne. So suspicious, in fact, that he had countless members of his own entourage murdered including two of his sons, his two oldest sons. He goes, wow, they're getting, they're getting old and they're getting kind of strong and they've got a following. They're going to take my throne. So he killed them. So his third oldest son goes, ooh, I see what's coming for me. So he tries to kill Herod. He's not successful, so guess what? Herod kills him, right? What a great family, right? And it gets, it gets worse. Herod built fortresses all over the place. Why? Because he wanted to have somewhere to run when people tried to kill him. So think about this. This man who took on the moniker, The Great, who called himself The Great, 
is so worried that he builds fortresses all over the place to go and hide in case someone tries to kill him. Probably someone related to him. He was afraid of his people. He was afraid of his children. He was afraid of Rome. He was afraid of outside rulers. And he was afraid of being forgotten, which is why he built all these things. As a matter of fact, when he built them, he put his own signature on every single block. Every single block says this was put here by Herod. Herod was so worried that people would forget about him that he says, when I die, I want you to round up hundreds of people from Jerusalem and I want you to murder them so that there's more mourning on the day I die than what it would have been if it had just been me. Now, thankfully, his children did something right here and they did not do that when he died. There was a popular saying, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod, because he was serving as the king of Israel, knew touching a pig was unclean. So if you were a pig, you survived in Herod's house. If you were a son, good luck. So this is the grand poobah. This is the, the patriarch of the Herodian family. The guy we're talking about today is not him, but he doesn't, the nut doesn't fall too far from the tree. The Herod of our story is Herod the Tetrarch, which again, doesn't help. Still called Herod. His full name is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the baby killer and his fourth wife. And he is a piece of work. A tetrarch just simply means someone who's a ruler, someone who's in charge of an area. And this area was one of four areas that were run in Israel at the time. So you'll have to pardon me because I am going to do a little teacher stuff here. And I'm going to show you guys some maps and some things like that. So go ahead and put that map up there for me, Kyle. So Herod Antipas is in charge of the purple sections here, okay? So this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. So Herod Antipas has these two areas, okay? This is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. This blue area was run by his brother, um, and then his other brother, Philip II, is running that one. The Decapolis was run by Rome, and it means ten cities. So that's kind of where we're at. I want to give you a picture of what it looks like. So four brothers... Three of them are in ruling, and there's a fourth brother who's also named Philip. They can't come up with new names. So Philip I is another brother who is living in Rome, and he's kind of a, a debutante. He's kind of a, a rich, spoiled kid living in Rome, and we'll see him in a minute. So that's this Herod. He's ruling over a piece of land that his, his father had ruled all of, and he's kind of got, you know, I mean, it's a split-up land, and it's kind of whatever, right? This Herod Antipas is actually going to marry the, the daughter of the king of the white area down to the bottom, called the Nabataean kingdom. And so he marries that girl as a, a way to solidify his power. So that's Herod. Now, the next question we ask is, why does Herod think John the Baptist is haunting him? Why is John the Baptist back from the dead? Mark gives us a kind of a picture into this. In Mark chapter 6, it tells the same story we're looking at today. It says, but others say he's Elijah, and others say he's the prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has been risen. So all these people are saying, Jesus is somebody special. He's a prophet. He's Elijah. He's, he's something special. And Herod, with his little minority report, goes, no, no, I think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, why does Herod go there when no one else is going there? Well, this is the point of today's passage, because 
in, chap in verse 13, when Jesus hears that Herod thinks he's John the Baptist reborn, Jesus goes off and, and mourns. He, there's, there's a response to this. So this is what this passage is about. Why does Herod Antipas think John the Baptist is back from the dead? So, John, so Matthew writes the flashback. So let's get into the flashback now. Verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, to be seized and bound means he was chained and he was arrested, okay? He's thrown in a prison. This prison was in the basement of a palace that Herod the baby killer had made just off the Dead Sea in Jordan. It was called Macaris, which, that's eh, okay, but it's called the Fortress of Swords, which is way cooler than Macaris. <laughs> so this Fortress of Swords was a gigantic palace, and down below there is a huge dungeon which they've excavated. And it is just what you'd expect. It's not a clean, posh place. It's dirty, it's filthy, it's where all the sewage would go. John the Baptist had been saying, this is the Greek imperfect form, which means he said it over and over again. So John's not like just says this, he just doesn't say it in passing. No, he's saying, hey, have you heard about Herod? Yeah, um, his wife and him, that, that's, that, that doesn't count. That's illegal, that's unlawful, that's bad news. He'd been saying it over and over and over again. Now, it's important to know, a prophet does not confront somebody because they hate them. John the Baptist doesn't hate Herod Antipas. John the Baptist is confronting Herod Antipas so that he'll do what John's message has been the entire time, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So John the Baptist is actually loving Herod. He's saying to Herod Antipas, this is the way to life. You're choosing death. You're choosing the opposite of what you need. And so John is loving him. He is not hating him. It says, because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So this is the Philip, Philip I, who lives in Rome. He's the one hanging out with all the parties, spending his dad's money, just kind of being, you know, a, 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 a debutante, if you will. Herodias... Now, I wonder who she's named after. Hmm. Herodias is the granddaughter of Herod the Great, Herod the baby killer. So that means that Philip I, Philip II, Herod Antipas, and Herodias are all related. They are cousins. Now, in this time, marrying cousins was not something that was looked down upon. However, the Bible kind of leans towards, let's not do that. But it gets worse. Herod Antipas... And Philip, the first wife, Herodias, had an affair when Antipas visited Rome. Antipas went to Rome. Um, on his way there, he decided that the princess he married, her name is Thessalius. This will not be on a test. You do not need to worry about it. He decided he wasn't in love with her anymore and kind of wanted to play the field. When he got to Rome, he began an affair with his brother's wife. He then proposes to her. Now get this, a married man proposing to a married woman, and she says yes, and they begin to dissolve their marriage relationships. Ironically, with what we know of the story, Antipas is not worried about going back on his oath at this point. He is later, but right now he's not worried about breaking his oath. So Herod, Antipas divorces his wife, Herodias divorces her husband, Herod Antipas's half-brother, and they get married, or at least they think they do. 
This made two people very mad. Probably a whole lot more, but two for sure. The first person it made mad was Herod Antipas's wife's dad, the king of the Nabataean kingdom. His name is King Aretas. So you know what King Aretas does? Because his daughter flees, right? She's thinking, he divorces me, he's probably going to kill me. So she flees. So you know what Herod, you know what King Aretas does? He attacks Herod Antipas's kingdom, right? And he wins. And here's a funny little thing. You know who helps Herod Antipas? Philip II, the other brother of Herod Antipas. I mean, if you thought your family was messed up when you walked in the door today, this is, I mean, we're getting to a really messed up family, right? So what is John saying to Herod Antipas? He's saying, it's not lawful for you to have her. Notice two things, and I think it's really clear in this passage. Notice it doesn't say in verse 3, Herod's new wife. Whose wife is it? Who's, who does she belong to according to marriage? She belongs to Philip still. So look at here. He says, John the Baptist won't even say your wife. He says, you shouldn't have her. She should not be a part of your life in this way. He won't even call it a marriage. See, not only did they have an adulterous affair, which is clearly in violation of God's law, but the marriage was invalid because of what they did. See, the thing about this is, John's not doing this in, um, in, in, out of lack of knowledge. He knows the Herod line. He knows what they do to their own. What do you think they're going to do to a prophet who stands up and says, no, you shouldn't be doing that. So John knew exactly what was at stake here. But the Lord had so impressed on him that he needed to say this, that it would be disobedient for him not to stand up and say, Herod, you should not be doing this even if it cost him his life, which we will see it did. Verse 5, And though he, Herod, Antipas, wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Now Herod Antipas is the consummate politician. He does what the people like, even if the people are wrong. Mark gives us a little more information here. It says, Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, not just the people, but he feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he, he heard him gladly. See, this, this Herod Antipas, he knows John's right. His conscience is not so dulled at this point that he can not see that John is telling the truth. You know, every historian knows that there are these sensitive tyrants, Right? Men who kill those they love and then weep over them. Herod did this. When he killed his two sons, he killed them and then he cried about it. This is mind-boggling. But you know, we, we know people that are like that. We know people that are great sinners, that admire Christians from afar, but don't want to change their lives, don't want their lives to be righteous. Instead, they'd rather still live in their sin and say how great those people are. So it looks like Herod Antipas wanted to put him to death, especially because of Herodias, but he knew Antipas, Antipas knew that John was right. He knew John was holy, but the pressure of the others got to him. In the Bible, it calls this the fear of man. And the Bible is very clear that the fear of man should not be what drives us. Instead, it should be the fear of the Lord. Antipas, this, this king, lives in fear. Actually, he's not much different than his dad. He fears his wife. 
He fears the loss of his throne. He fears John the Baptist, who doesn't have an army, doesn't have anybody following him that will fight for him. He's afraid of people. He's paralyzed because he's afraid of everything. Ed Welch writes, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They grow to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there's no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not worshipped. So the Bible makes it really clear. The fear of man is a sin. It's a bad thing because it's going to lead you to all sorts of other sins. But the Bible also makes it really clear how to defeat the fear of man. Proverbs 29. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It's a trick. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, the fear of man, worrying about what people are going to think about us, incapacitates us and makes us so we can't be of any use to the Lord. The solution is to submit to the Lord. Look at verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So this is a birthday party. It's taking place at the Fortress of Swords. Now, birthday parties were a Roman thing. The Jews did not celebrate birthdays. They had plenty of other feasts, feasts and holidays to celebrate without incorporating birthdays. But the Romans celebrated birthdays, and the Roman men of power celebrated a lot. These were looked down upon by the Jews, and you'll see why here. The Herod family was not only known for killing each other and stabbing each other in the back, they were known for their debauchery. They were known for grotesque parties full of alcohol and non-family-friendly activities. In fact, this party that Herod threw was a men's-only party with dancers and other pursuits to follow. Herod Antipas was most likely drunk when he uttered this promise. So how did this all come about? Well, Herodias is working behind the scenes. She knows what kind of party this is. She knows who she's married. So she takes her own daughter and sends her into the party to dance for these men because she knows she can manipulate her husband this way, using her own daughter to manipulate her husband to get her revenge. At the end of the dancing, Mark 6.23 tells us that Herod goes, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What's ironic here is that he actually doesn't have a kingdom. He is not actually a king. Nor does he have any say over who gets his kingdom. The Romans do that. So offering her this was offering her something that didn't belong to him. And then when what she asks for is something that doesn't belong to him, he gives it to her anyways. Prompted by her mother, verse 8, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Some people say, well, This doesn't make any sense. This has never happened. Actually, there's about a dozen stories like this of different issues where a person is killed and they did bring their head in on a platter. Herodias believes that by killing John the Baptist, her guilt is gone. She thinks getting rid of him will make me free and clear. Well, she found out she was wrong, but that's not a part of our story today. J.C. Ryle says, God's witnesses may be put out of the way, but their testimony lives on long after they're dead. And we see that here. Verse 9, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. It's interesting here, Matthew calls him king. I believe this is Matthew showing the irony of it all. 
Because one, when a king is a king, he doesn't say he's sorry. Because when the king does it, the king is the law. Lex, like he's, the, he's the boss. He's in charge. So if he does it, it's okay to do. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't say he's sorry. So ironically, this king is acting the least kingly of all this time. This politician knows that if he doesn't do what he says, these people will overthrow him. Also, not what a king would expect. Instead of standing up and going, that's a stupid request, young lady. I'm going to do something totally different. Instead, he goes, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. This morally impotent, witless, weak, pride-filled man who's fearful of his wife, fearful of his friends, fearful of being overthrown, lines up more iniquity that he has to drink. Most weak men are fearful of people thinking that they're weak. And Herod Antipas was right there. Verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought to the, on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Here, Herodias is acting the role of Jezebel, which I think is not incidental here, right? You remember Jezebel was the queen up in the north who wanted Elijah dead and tried and tried and tried again to kill Elijah, and then she's the one that ends up dying. And Elijah is taken up to heaven. A fitting end for a prophet of the Lord. Here, it's reversed. She lives the long life, and the prophet is put to death. Where Jezebel failed, Herodias is successful. So why, why was Herod Antipas thinking this was John the Baptist? Why is Herodias so hot to get him put to death? What is the reason? Well, it's because of the conscience. It's because of their consciences. So what is a conscience? Well, each of us has a conscience. It's a part of our brain that produces anguish and guilt when we don't match up to what we're supposed to. It's also the thing that gives us praise and makes us feel good when we do match up to what we're supposed to. A conscience is something that reacts to actions, thoughts, and words, either for the good or for the bad. Now, where does this standard, this, this baseline for a conscience come from? Well, it comes ultimately from God's word. But all people, all of us, though fallen and sinful, have a very basic understanding of God's law, and it's written on our hearts. So here are some truths about our consciences that will help answer this question. The first is, we all have one. Every single one of us has a conscience. Whether we listen to it or not, that's a whole different thing. But we all have consciences. A conscience is God's mercy and grace on every single human. Because without it, we'd be even worse. I know that's hard to imagine. But without a conscience, we would be even worse. It's God's guide for us. It's his common grace to us. Look at Romans 2.15. Paul writes, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. He's talking about those who are not believers. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul's making the case that every single person has God's law written on their hearts. And actually, our consciences restrain us. Look at Herod Antipas. He doesn't kill John the Baptist when he wanted to. Why? Because he felt his conscience being pricked. It was being touched. It was, being, it was painful. He was going, ah, this is not right. But our consciences 
can restrain sin, but they cannot save us. And this is where we need to understand the difference between moralism, following a bunch of rules to be saved, and Christianity, which is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You could obey your conscience 100% and go straight to hell. Because obeying your conscience is not what saves. But should we listen to our conscience? Absolutely. But it's not enough. Conviction can be good. It can restrain sin. It can keep us from doing what we know is wrong. But it will not save us. That only comes through the life-giving Holy Spirit. Look at what John 6, 63 Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh, our conscience is a part of the flesh. It's no help at all. It does point out that we have sin. It does point out when we're doing things wrong. It is meant to make us feel uncomfortable when we're doing things we're not supposed to. But it will never get us to bow the knee aside from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And the Holy Spirit does that. And isn't that, isn't that just like the Lord he gives every single person inside of us, written on our hearts, a right or wrong that nobody can explain. Why is it that I can go on the other side of the planet and find somebody who's never heard the name of Jesus, and they're going to have some of the same basic conscience things that I have? Where did that come from? You can't say it came from, well, we were all trained in public school, private school, whatever. They're on the other side of the planet. Throughout history, in Herod's time, with all of this stuff going on, there were people that said, he's doing the wrong thing. They weren't Christian. They were Romans. So there's a conscience that's in all of us. And this conscience points to the fact that we're the Lord. Now, as we look at this, some of you are probably asking, okay, if we all have a conscience, then why are people doing bad things? Well, I, the Bible tells us. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, I chose that one because I like that phrase at the end. Consciences are seared. That word means to cauterize. It's been rendered insensitive. It's been put to death. When something is cauterized, it's dead. The skin is dead. You can't feel it. It's not working properly. It's like spiritual scar tissue. Just like when an animal is, is, is branded, that, that becomes numb to further pain, you could brand over it over and over again, the animal can't feel it because it's become numb. It's ironic that in the Bible, this, this sin, this continuous giving in to sin is called leprosy in the Bible. If you know anything about leprosy, leprosy is the nerve endings die. And so you can't feel what you're doing. And so you scratch and you're tearing your skin off because you can't feel that you're doing that. And that's what's happening here. A seared conscience is an ignored conscience. When we sin against our conscience again and again and again, its restraining power is lessened and lessened and lessened to the point where it disappears. We give in to that sin over and over again. We become dead. This is why no one who is righteous wakes up one day and goes, I think I'll go have an affair. I think I'll go murder somebody today. I think I'll embezzle. I think I'll do these things I shouldn't. Instead, it's these little steps of ignoring our conscience leading to compromise after compromise. So let's look at Herod. Herod Antipas. He didn't just leap into bed with Herodias one day. No, it started with improper thoughts. 
things that he shouldn't have been allowing to stay there. And he kept doing it. Lingering glances, then small flirtations, and then things out of place, time alone when they shouldn't have been together. Then over time, that grows into a full sin to the point where he's willing to send soldiers to go die because of his decision to get rid of his princess queen. Another way to put this is our conscience is like a sharp square peg in our hearts. Whenever we come into a questionable situation, that square begins to turn and the sharp edges begin cutting into our hearts and we go, oh, I don't like that. I don't want to stop that. Our conscience is saying, stop doing it. However, if our conscience is ignored over time and that peg begins to turn, what does it do? It turns that square hole into a circle and before you know it, the peg is spinning and there's no pain. Great, no pain, except for you are in a grievous sin. You are ignoring your conscience. You're ignoring the work of the Spirit on your life. So ignoring our conscience will make us do things that we would normally hate. Violating the law of God written on our hearts. And we'll see just how seared Herod Antipas' conscience is at the end here in a moment. We all have a conscience. By itself, it's not a great guide of what's right and wrong. The Holy Spirit comes in and redeems it. But ultimately... We need to understand that without listening to our consciences, we are not that far from Herod Antipas. We're not that far from Herodias. We're not surprised when men and women in power and authority abuse it. We're not shocked anymore, are we? We're not surprised. We're kind of like, that just happens, right? But it's something we need to recognize that there is a Herod in all of us. There is a Herodias in all of us. And it's only by God's grace that some of us have not been given more power or more authority. Because all power and authority does is it puts it up on a pedestal and makes it more clear to the people around. Because there's more people watching. So praise be to the Lord that we have not been given that power. Because some of us, we have a seared conscience that we are saying, you know what? It's fine. Nobody knows. I'm doing my own thing. There is one that knows. Besides yourself, there is one that knows. And that one is the Lord. We can ignore our conscience and constantly refuse to repent. We are in the same boat as Herodias. We're in the same boat as Herod Antipas. Yes, they're monsters. And yes, we'll classify them up there with whatever monsters we want to look through throughout history. But we need to understand that we have that same predilection to sin when we sear our consciences. But the awesome thing about it is, is that our Lord is a God of life. What did he say back there in John 6, 63? The Spirit brings life. And just like we've seen, I mean, you you can go through your New Testament. Jesus is healing lepers. He's bringing people back from the dead. He's giving blind, blind people sight. I mean, you go through all of those. Every single one of those healings is a picture of a sin in our lives that needs to be taken care of. Every single one of them. You can use those as a metaphor for where our consciences are if we're ignoring them. He is a good and willing to heal God. So let's finish John's story, verse 12. And his disciples, John's disciples came, took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now if we're honest, this is a very ignominious death. This is a very depressing end to John's story. We get to this point and we, we go, Lord, why? Why did you do this? 
Why is it that your faithful servant, who'd been imprisoned for months, was beheaded at the request of a dancing girl by a monster who lived a long life? Is this a mistake, Lord? Did you mess up? I think the thing to remember is that our reward is not in this life. Our reward is not here and now. John the Baptist, when he closed his eyes and opened them up in eternity, he's been experiencing that reward now for nearly 2,000 years. Ryle again says, Let all true Christians remember that the best things are yet to come. Let us not count it strange if we have sufferings in this present time. Sometimes things don't end well for those of us who want to follow the Lord. See, John was not living his best life now while he was in prison. He wasn't. One of the things we need to understand is as well-meaning as some people are when they say, God closes a door, he's going to open a window. That, that is true. But sometimes God closes a door and then the house falls on you. So the question is, is Jesus enough in that moment? Is Jesus enough? Because what we cling to in this life is the one that we are with for eternity. All John had to do was take back what he said. All John had to do was recant, maybe do a little sacrifice to the greatness of Herod. He walks free. We should not be surprised, though, when we stand for what is right. Because John is listening to his conscience. He does what his conscience says. Herod and Herod, Herod Antipas and Herod Herodias are not. They're ignoring it. So we shouldn't be surprised. You know, in the Bible, the very first murder is of Abel, who was doing the right thing according to his conscience. Cain ignored it. We shouldn't be surprised that John the Baptist, the first New Testament martyr, dies the same way. We should not expect to be caressed by this world when we stand for what's right. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. John's life ends on earth, and his best life started then. His best life he is experiencing right now. We cannot expect earthly ease. It's not promised in the Bible. Instead, what's promised is how easy it's going to be for eternity. Now, Jesus' death will be coming soon. We know, we know where the, the book goes, we know the ending. And unlike, Jesus's, unlike John's death, which is unjust and absurd, Jesus' is meaningful and so full of meaning and so full of purpose that it boggles the mind. And what's ironic is that Herod Antipas gets to see this and he misses it. Herod Antipas is paranoid about John the Baptist. So let's return back to Herod and finish his story because I think we'll see what we need to do. John the Baptist was who he was afraid of when he should have been afraid of Jesus Christ. Herod Antipas was afraid of John the Baptist was back from the dead to convict him. Good news for him, John wasn't back. Bad news, it was someone greater. Same thing goes for us. There is bad news before there's good news. Bad news is we are all going to stand before the Son of God as our judge. The good news is that same judge died in our place. Christ wants to reveal that to us. He wants us to see that. But for many, we're fearful of man. We're holding on to reputations. 
We're holding on to what people think about us and feel about us. Or we're holding on to the hope that I'm only going to do just enough to get into heaven, but I want my best life right here, right now. Ultimately, that does not solve any of our problems. See, Herod Antipas, his story ends with Jesus standing right in front of him. Did you know that? Look at Luke chapter 23. When Pilate had heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. This is Jesus he's talking about. And when Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction up in Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wants Jesus to dance for him, show him a miracle. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate, and that day Herod and Pilate became friends. So Jesus stands before Herod Antipas. This man whose conscience is so seared, he's still married to Herodias. In a few short years, he's gonna, his brother Philip II dies, and he tries to take that land but his grandson ends up coming in and stealing it from him, and he runs off into exile and dies at the age of 80, married still to Herodias. That's how his story ends. But right here at this moment, the God of all creation, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one who can heal his conscience is there, and Herod goes, dance for me. Come on, Jesus, do another trick. Show me something fun. He misses out. His conscience is so seared that it cannot see what's standing right in front of him. Herod Antipas has rejected Christ, and Christ has rejected Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is that stony ground that we saw in the earlier parables. For fear of women, of a woman, fear of a reputation, fear of his peers, fear of his throne being gone has damned his soul forever. John the Baptist loses his head but lives in God's presence forever. Herod holds on to his throne until the last minute and has entered into damnation as far as we know. When fears drown out your conscience, you're in a bad place. Herod Antipas, all he needed to do was look to Jesus and ask or the help that he needed. Proverbs 14 again says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and the one that one may turn away from the snares of death. Remember, snares is what they called the fear of man. It's being offered to Herod right there in front of him. John's fear was of the Lord. This is why he stood up to the tyrant. John listened to his con conscience even though it was leading him to death. Herod ignores it and forfeited his chance at eternal life, even though Jesus got to stand right in front of him. How many of us would love to have Jesus stand right in front of us? What a comparison. The point of this passage is that inside we're all Herods and Herodiuses. It's only through the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit that we can be anything of value, that we can be like John the Baptist. So if you have places in your life where the conscience is convicting you, do not ignore it. Instead, take them to Jesus. Think about your life. Where in the past has your conscience, has your conscience condemned you? Your conscience didn't, you know, that what's right and wrong didn't change. 
if that conscience went away. You just got hardened to it. Take that to the Lord and say, Lord, bring life back into me. See, who had the better life? Was it Herod Antipas, long life, living in palaces, parties galore, or John the Baptist, a life cut short in less than 34 years? Herod, who ran around being fearful of everybody and everything, ending his life in exile, having the Son of God stand before him and add to the abuse of the Son of God, or John the Baptist, who lived in the wilderness, eating bugs, hardship, having his head cut off and opening his eyes in the presence of the Lord. Our world says Herod Antipas wins, but we know that's not true, because this life is not all there is. There is a life to come. And this greater reality is that Herod was a big loser and John was a big winner. Not because John was special, but because who John put his faith in. John had the better life. And unlike Herod, he's sitting with that life with Christ right now. Will you join him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this out-of-place story this story that doesn't seem to fit. But Lord, now that we can see what it's telling us and how even you could use a terrible group of individuals like this Herodian family to teach us that we need more of you. Lord, you're so gracious to give us a conscience so we know what's right and wrong. Lord, forgive us for ignoring it. Forgive us for becoming dead to it. And Lord, I pray that you would step in now and heal our consciences. And Lord, that you would draw us near to you. Help us to see you and see you rightly. Help us not to be like Herod and miss you right in front of us, right here, right now. Lord, thank you for being a God that communicates and loves and wants to be a part of our lives. In your name, amen.